uh, especially if someone's like starting out or whatever, I wouldn't be like, you know what you should buy? A Leica that doesn't have any autofocus. It's clearly an inferior camera in so many ways, technically. But yeah, there's something to be said about being inspired by the gear you use and wanting to use it. And especially like having that limitation to like force yourself to think harder and yeah, have to come up with like all sorts of creative solutions around being stuck with that gear, right? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio. I'm your host, Dave Mays, and today's guest is Binge Heish. Binge is a wedding and film photographer with loads of experience shooting hundreds of weddings. One thing that really makes Binge stand out as a wedding photographer is the fact that he uses both film cameras and Leica M bodies to photograph his weddings. Being a Leica fanboy myself, we definitely nerded out talking about Leica cameras and why he chooses to use that tool instead of the traditional DSLR or modern mirrorless body. We talk about what it's like getting started in the wedding industry, as well as several tips and tricks to become a better photographer. Binge has also started his journey into YouTube, so of course we talk about that as well in this conversation. Without any further ado, let's listen in on my conversation with Binge. All right, so we are here today with Binge Heish, wedding photographer extraordinaire from Seattle, Washington. What is up, my man? Dude, it's so good to be on here, man. It's uh, fun to be on here, especially because I've actually listened to some of these episodes for sure. And it's been fun to learn about people <laughs> and all that stuff for sure. So it's a little meta for you to be in Oh, it. it's super meta. It's like well, especially because... Yeah. Oh, big time. Like, and I've seen, I watch your YouTube videos at times and stuff like that too. So like seeing you on my computer talking to me, is kind of a, an extra meta thing, right? I've had that experience on this podcast. I've interviewed some, some people where it's this, uh, it's the exact same feeling. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Uh, Renee Ritchie for me was, was pretty yeah. surreal. I've been listening to him on Mac break weekly for, I don't know, six, seven years or, or more. Yeah. Um, and hearing him respond to me back was like, <laughs> this is so weird. I listen to all your podcasts. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's fun, you know, being in this industry, it's cool. Cause you get to meet people and, uh, we're all, you know, everybody's just a, a normal person. We all are the same. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, outside of our little niche maybe nobody knows who we are but like inside of it it's fun to like oh i've i've seen your work and uh and you're one of them man we follow each other on twitter and i love mm -hmm. your content i'm a huge film buff myself and love film and i want to get into that you're a big yeah. Leica and a film yeah. fan and um you know we also both have our wedding shooters you're continuing on strong with that uh, <laughs> yeah and obviously the pandemic has has been bad with that and we'll talk <laughs> about that but yeah um but first like let's start with binge who are you what do you do where do you come from tell me your story like yeah as quickly as possible <laughs> i was gonna say Go. that's a, that could be a whole hour podcast right there obviously but yeah <laughs> man uh I'm yeah. My name is Ben Heish. I live in Tacoma, Washington, like right outside of Seattle. Okay. Uh, born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, so I've been here all my life. Uh, just like out in the mountains and the the trees and the lakes and stuff. And uh, yeah, never really thought all that stuff was cool until I started traveling and then realized, oh my gosh, like no one has or not everyone has like these giant mountains off in the distance and uh, seasons with snow and all this <laughs> other stuff. You know, it's true. Yeah. Um, and yeah, man, I, I just sort of got into photography via traveling and then 
posted just kind of like my you know trip through Europe and India and stuff on, on online and uh, some people randomly saw that and were like hey I know it's only a couple days before this wedding, but my sister's wedding photographer bailed. Is there any way you could take photos at this wedding for me? And I was like, no, I've never been to a wedding before. Like, you do not want me to be the person in charge of this. You never even uh, have had been to a wedding? like, Dude, I was the ring bearer in my uncle's wedding when I was two. Uh-huh. So I'd, I'd been to one. <laughs> uh, didn't really know anything about it. But yeah, so like yeah. I, they, their expectations were incredibly low. They were just like, hey, anything's better than nothing. We just don't want to be the people responsible for taking these photos. Yeah, uh, We just need someone else to do it. Uh, so I just kind of signed up to do it. Uh, and then... And someone else saw those photos once I posted those. And then it just kind of like snowballed from something that was like not in my radar at all to like it's been my full time job wow. for over a decade. So, yeah, <laughs> just like yeah. such a crazy thing. Wasn't even close to, yeah, on my radar. I was like trying to do music. Uh, and I was young. I think I started when I was like 20 or 21, too. And so yeah. uh, it's been it's been, honestly been the only like real job I've ever had, yeah. um, which is kind of bizarre so were you going to college at the time or did you not go to college mm-hmm. or? yeah so i was going to college i wanted to do just like digital art stuff so i was like doing music but also had started doing photography a little bit and video work and was just kind of interested in that whole thing um but then weddings just sort of started happening and were paying me significantly more than i was making in any other creative endeavor yeah um and so, yeah, I mean, I, it just like became one of those things that I was doing for the money for a little while. And then as I grew sort of as a human and had different life experiences and I had a kid and I got married myself uh, in opposite order of that. But um, it just became something <laughs> that I ended up having a lot of like and seeing the meaning behind. And so it started as something that just like fueled me both creatively and financially and now it sort of like also fuels me like emotionally and with significance and stuff and so yeah i mean not to like wrap it up already but that's like sort of the reasons <laughs> one of the reasons why you know i'm a kind of an odd person that is still doing it years later <laughs> i mean it's not that odd there's there are people that yeah. enjoy it and love it but before we started our interview we were talking about how you know i did it for about 8 years um, and, and moved on to doing YouTube stuff because I was kind of honestly, you know, no offense to the, the wedding no, um, yeah. business, but I was a little burnt out from it and I wanted to move on and do something different. Um, what about it for you? Like kept, keeps you going back and, and wanting more. I mean, you, you touched on it a little bit, but yeah. can you dive totally. deeper in that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a huge, I mean, it's like the, the reason that I'm, I'm still doing this. Right. So, um, it definitely kind of, like I said, was, it was fueling me sort of creatively. And then at the beginning it was like, you know, paying the bills. And there's something to be said about other than this year, having the financial security of, you know, you're booking stuff a year out. And so normally in September, December, I already have a full year worth of stuff booked out. So having like the sort of financial security is always kind of helpful, uh, especially in a freelance world where that usually isn't the case. Um, But yeah, as I was kind of like just doing it, I would show up to weddings when I was 21, 22. And if it wasn't like visually inspiring to me, like I wouldn't take photos. Uh, (laughs) So it was just bad. Like I was trying to do a good job, right? But like, you know, if the centerpieces were bad, uh, I wouldn't take photos of them because I was like, these don't match the rest of the room. This is a bad photo. Like, I don't want this. (laughs) Uh, 
And then I, I got engaged and then I got married and then realized sort of how significant all those little decisions could be, right? And so I realized like, oh, I need to take photos of all these things because they either decided that that was important to them or they made it or they spent money on it or whatever. Um, or some, you yeah, know, and then an aunt yeah. or a grandma made it. and Totally. <laughs> yeah. There's like personal significance to so many things that like you as an outsider can't always realize. Yeah. Um, and then so, yeah, I got married and then I got my photos back and then I realized like what photos were really significant to me and what photos were like, eh, this is cool, but like whatever, yeah. don't really care as much. Um, and so that helped shape, you know, like my thinking behind weddings. And yeah. then, uh, you know, like my grandmother passed away a couple of years after that. And so I could go back and see just the couple of photos that I was with my grandmother together. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, those photos have such, like, I got goosebumps just saying that, like have such yeah, personal <laughs> significance to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, my wife got pregnant and I, we found out that my wife was pregnant and then I flew out to photograph a wedding in Alaska, like two days later. Um, and I remember, you know, I'm always trying to put myself kind of like in the perspective of the people so I can better empathize with what they're going through and, um, you know, thinking through like what stuff is going to have significance. And so I remember as the, um, you know, brides like walking down the aisle with her dad, I was like, oh, it re always reminded me of like when my wife walked down the aisle to me at our wedding. And I would yeah. always like reminisce on that. And then as she's walking down, I start to empathize with the dad and go like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be a parent soon. Oh, my gosh. What if that's me soon? You know, like someday I might be walking someone down the aisle. Um, and I yeah. start just like crying as I'm trying to like photograph this thing, <laughs> like that's thinking amazing. through like how significant these photos could be. Um, for these people and I think that's the sort of key to good portrait photography too but like especially like events and things where people are together is like thinking through the depth and the legacy of like what these photos not only mean now in this particular instance and in two weeks from now or a month from now when they get them but like five years from now 10 years from now 20 years from now like and especially after those people are gone how incredibly meaningful all those moments could be and how yeah. there's just such more of a depth to the relationship between the people in those photographs than yeah. most of the time we give credit to um, because there's been a lifetime of interactions between those two people that we haven't been witness to. But as a wedding photographer, at least you're given the opportunity to like jump into that moment at that particular time. Um, and so you see that interaction, but trying to think through and empathize with like every other interaction that's led to that point, um, honestly, is the stuff that keeps me going like, man, this is like really cool and significant. And uh, I'm helping create their visual heritage and their visual history through these photos. And so, yeah, man, that, yeah. I mean, that's a huge reason why I still find a ton of value uh, of in doing wedding photography. How many weddings would you say that you've shot now after that many years yeah a couple hundred yeah f yeah a few hundred probably in like the yeah three to four hundred range yeah. for sure same here yeah. i mean there were times where we were doing two two maybe even three on a weekend sometimes which yeah. is nuts brutal <laughs> we had to dial it down but that was during busy times uh yeah <laughs> things for are, sure things are a little like i remember when i was in the thick of my wedding uh career i was working with a guy named jeffrey hall and we did videos um called full frame cinema was the name of the brand if you nice. guys want to check it out but um we had a couple pinterest videos that kind of went viral and that allowed mm, us to get totally. a lot of nationwide um kind of exposure and we ended up booking you know um 
like weddings in other states and and uh, even a couple out of the country. And it was a really exciting time. You know, I was a teenager. I was like 18, 19. Uh, it was right when the 5D and the 7D yeah. were kind of coming up. And it, it was an exciting time because we were early adopters in the HDSLR um, kind of mm-hmm. craze with video. Um, and so because we had shallowed up the field and more cinematic footage, uh, we were getting booked a lot more than other people that were still stuck on uh, camcorders. Yeah. <laughs> um, that has completely changed now. I think every videographer, especially oh shooting on a mirrorless or a DSLR now, and things have gotten so good and amazing. But um, there is obviously, like I've, I've told people, like even when the economy was kind of crashing when I was involved in 2009, mm-hmm. uh, it was like, well, people are still getting married, you know, it yeah. doesn't, doesn't matter. But but <laughs> I don't think any of us could have foreseen anything like what's going on right now yeah. um, with the pandemic. Tell me about what's happening in the wedding industry in general. I know you've got other photography friends, I'm sure. So yeah. what's oh, going absolutely. on? What's going on in the wedding <laughs> business right now yeah absolutely yeah what you just said about you know like i started my business in the first like you know 2009 financial crisis i was doing it a couple years before and was really kind of like hitting into being really serious about it at that point um and that was always the thing is like people i was doing like you know senior photos for people on the side and stuff and i was like well people are always going to graduate high school that people are always going to get married like no matter what there's always going to be a luxury behind those things and if you're doing good enough work like someone's still going to hire you um but yeah now having a full-time job that is celebrating in large groups, people gathering together um, during a global pandemic, man, has just been like, just unreal. And so there's just so much uncertainty, even with what's going to be happening next year. And um, so I went into this um, with like around like 20-ish weddings booked, um, which is pretty normal for me now. Like I was in like the 30, 40 range for, for a while. And then I uh, sort of had my own kid and uh, my wife has another, we have another on the way in a couple months. Congrats. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but the idea of, yeah, doing like 40 weddings and I was traveling for like half of those. I was yeah. doing a few international year and then uh, at least half of them were out of state where I had to get on a plane and be gone for a few days. So anyway, back to, I was at about, about 20 weddings and uh, yeah, thankfully none of them have outright canceled. Um a lot of them have moved to either smaller elopements. So a couple of weeks ago, I did one that was on the same day. They had to like cancel their venue and everything else, but they still had like a, I think there were like 20 people there. Um, you know, they just were like, we're still getting married same day, everything, but we're having like 20 people. It's all outside in Oregon and uh, yeah, it was you, great. But then, are you sorry, giving yeah. their, Are you like giving them money back though? I mean, or... No. So like as a, as a wedding photographer, like, you know, you're still there for the same amount of hours. Um, and so, I mean, thankfully that's why I I really feel bad for like venue owners and caterers and like, you know, if someone books you for like a 250 person catering job and then they move to 20 people, like, (laughs) and And same thing with like, you can still get great photos of a couple go you know, a golden hour to a field or whatever. It's just the three of you. You can social distance from them and whatever, right? Like you can still be safe and get beautiful photos. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like, that's, that's sort of my thing too, is like, I do a lot of smaller, 
what we've kind of dubbed like adventure elopements, which is now like its cool. own entire subset of the wedding industry. Um, and so like on a couple weekends ago, I did a, like a 20 person gathering uh, that was like a wedding and I did a, a an elopement of just like, I think there were five people there, including myself, where we hiked to the top of this mountain, this viewpoint, um, and they overlooked a lake at sunset. It was amazing. Wow. Um, Beautiful. And so, so like, but so for them too, with kind of like what's going on in the wedding industry is I have a lot of my couples are doing some sort of elopement this year because they planned their whole life around getting married. Um, and so they still want to get married this year, but then they're going to have like a celebration vow renewal of sorts slash like party next year um so that's kind of like a lot of them end up being either they're going to have some sort of elopement this year or they're going to have elopement and they're going to have a celebration with everybody next year too um so for me that is like ideal because it allows me to sort of like have something going on to keep the lights on um but then also have work to look forward to next year hopefully if everything sort of calms down and um yeah, man, the whole thing has just been so much about being as flexible as possible and knowing that for the couples who are trying to get married too, like yeah. it's awful for them to have to reschedule all their stuff. And that's uh, their yeah, dream. It's, just yeah, been, it's, it's their yeah. dream to have this this day. They've had it in their mind, and then it's getting ripped away from them. It's it's hard. It's hard to deal with. Like you know, it's easy for us to <clears throat> not put ourselves in their shoes because that didn't happen to us i got married six years ago you got married yeah when you could have people um yeah <laughs> but yeah i mean in the same way that you're yeah. empathizing when you're doing photography you can empathize with them i mean this is it's really tragic but um it's still you can still find beauty in it like how these uh travel elopements are happening that's i mean in a way that's kind of cool right there's some people they're like i never would have thought of doing this and now mm -hmm. we're doing it and it's really special really unique you're going to, I mean, everybody's going to always remember that. It's so um, different, you know, so. Oh, for sure. It, and like the cool thing for me is like I sort of how you said that you had like some stuff go like viral. I had some like my first or sort of the first like adventure elopement of mine back in 2013 went viral. It was like one of the most popular weddings of the year that was like non-celebrity or whatever. It blew up on Pinterest, all that stuff. And me doing that, uh, and at least people seeing it was the thing that they said often was that gave them permission to do the same thing. Um, and so both seeing that, but then now having this pandemic happen, a lot of them, of my clients have said they originally wanted to do something like that, something smaller, but they felt the cultural pressure to have uh -huh. a large wedding. Uh -huh. And so now a lot of them are saying they're sort of getting the best of both worlds. They're able to have like a small elopement this year, but then also have you know, yeah. a big gathering next year and sort of the same thing where they were like, this sort of gave us permission to do something that we sort of wanted to do anyway. Yeah, totally. It's just the Indian and Catholic weddings are going to be, those are the struggle <laughs> right there. <laughs> Dude, I can't imagine because yeah, the Indian weddings that I've photographed, so many of them are like 900 people uh -huh. and With I can't even imagine. With uh, three day oh my gosh. event. Yeah. Oh, it's so fun. Uh, Incredibly it fun. tiring, but yeah, <laughs> super fun, tiring, oh everything. Oh my gosh. I think the longest one we did was, yeah, it was three days. Um, there was a traditional ceremony and then an Indian ceremony and then a celebration day. And um, the amount of money and just the, oh my gosh. the scale of it is so unbelievable. If you're not in this world, you know, yeah, <laughs> just, just know Indian weddings, they're the most beautiful uh -huh. weddings really ever. It, it's really yeah. incredible. But uh, man, they are 
a lot of work and they are long <laughs> <laughs> very long but yeah super vibrant and just so much uh, like yeah. culture it's amazing yeah i love dude, it, dude i i and Dancing. like not to tangent too much but like i think that's one of the coolest things about wedding photography as well is you're just like invited in you get this ticket to this yeah. cultural experience and this event and these people's lives that you would have never gotten otherwise yeah um and it's such a personal thing to be able to be you know behind the scenes in a wedding right yeah so yeah there's just so many cool cultural things and travel experiences and stuff i've had just because i you know was able to have a camera and be invited to this stuff absolutely yeah um i again yeah totally it's it's so cool to like you said to be invited into that i've i've shot jewish weddings catholic weddings indian weddings christian weddings uh backyard weddings you know celebrity yeah. it's you really get to see everything and it's I almost feel bad sometimes for the family because we as photographers or videographers <laughs> spend more time with the couple than anybody uh, yep. in the whole wedding, which is so ironic. Totally, it's like usually you would think you know the the groom uh, or the 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 maid of honor, the groomsmen, the the family, like maybe they would spend more time with them, but really we get to spend more time yeah. with the couple than even the couple gets to spend with each other often. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. That's the bizarre thing. I always tell people when I'm like meeting with them for like a consult or something that if you get off the phone with me or this video chat or whatever, and you might think my photos are the best photos you've ever seen or whatever. But if you get off this and you're like, I couldn't hang out with that guy for a day. Like, don't hire me. And if you get on, you know, with somebody else and you just like, you don't jive well and your personalities don't work together and you seem like that person might be stressful or whatever, like, yeah, yeah you're going to be stuck with them for <laughs> most of the day. So it's definitely a weird consideration. One of the coolest things about the job when I remember it was the travel when we did get some, mm -hmm. some out of state weddings and I got to see a lot of great cities. What are some of some of your highlights that you've seen over the last couple of years of, of traveling and doing uh, wedding photography. Yeah, totally. I mean, sort of the, one of the first ones I've done two Indian weddings in Kenya, wow. um, which is like kind of bizarre. Cause I didn't even realize there was like an Indian population there, but there definitely is. Um, and so I've done a couple of Indian weddings in Kenya. I did, uh, I've done an elopement in Istanbul which wow. is amazing. Uh, a bunch of weddings throughout Europe. Um, I've done weddings in Australia, just like kind of all over the place. And I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely a really cool cultural experience to be able to like, especially get invited into another culture like that and see kind of like how other people live yeah. and how their families interact and how they celebrate and stuff like that. Um, but I think what's the interesting thing is just having traveled even the country and seeing other parts of, you know, I've lived in the Pacific Northwest all my life. So going and doing weddings down in the South, even uh, in places that I just assumed I understood. <laughs> and then you, you show up as someone that's lived in like outside of Seattle all your life. And then you show up to weddings in Georgia or something. And you're like, oh, there's this is a little bit different than I was expecting. I was expecting things to be more familiar, right? Uh -huh. You go to another country and you think that like, oh, I'm going to experience something different. But then sometimes you travel somewhere in your own country and go, oh, like, I guess I knew less about this place and this culture than I thought I did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, even just through America. I mean, America is so big. Most countries are split up uh, to be the size of some yeah. states even. So totally. our country, we kind of grew up with it. But every state really is almost like <laughs> its own country in a lot of ways, especially when yeah. you divide into the north, the south the you know west coast where mm -hmm. you're at you know alaska gosh that's so different yeah. hawaii you know 
totally. it's uh it's so diverse and so beautiful i love i love this country america <laughs> 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 um but um one of the things that a lot of people who are starting out when when they come up to me and they ask you know how do i get started should i go to college should i should i go mm. to photo you know uh become a photographer go to school you know how do i get started i i usually point them to wedding photography because it's such an amazing way to learn. And when I was starting out as a, a videographer, um, being able to shoot every single week, the same mm -hmm. storyline over and over, um, I know exactly where it's headed. You know, there's two yeah. unmarried people, they're preparing, there's anticipation, <laughs> and then there's the the climax of the ceremony itself and then the celebration at the, at the reception. And then they, they drive away off into the distance and, you know, they live happily ever after it's the same story every time. Mm -hmm. So you're able to really learn how to tell good stories, learn how to capture good things. You know, we would go in there and try to focus on today. We're going to try to get everything in camera with our white balance, or today we're going to focus on our composition or whatever. And having mm -hmm. all those, the same thing over and over, but obviously different people, it really allowed me to to learn and cut my teeth as a, a cinematographer and um i think it's one of the best ways to learn what you know what do you ha have to say about that no absolutely i mean i just think yeah when you're going through and like trying to learn something and then as a photographer you're taking like anywhere from like a minimum probably 2000 to like some people are taking like 8 to 10,000 photos at a wedding like what other kind of thing other than maybe sports if you're just like shooting a 1DX and just like laying on the shutter are you going to be shooting that many frames um in so many different realms i feel like when i first started out too like wedding photography was like the joke of the photography world you told someone that you're going to be a wedding photographer wherever they're like okay cool like well you have fun with that for a couple of years, but then when you're like ready to do something serious, like call me. Um, <laughs> but I think like the interesting is you have to, as a wedding photographer, you have to be good at landscapes. You have to be good at storytelling. You have to be good at product photography. You have to be good at portraits. You have to be good at event photography and motion and photojournalism. And, and there's to, just so many you, things going on. And you have to be a director and you have to understand mm -hmm. how to be a people person and communicate. And um, that's the thing about photography that I never really got a taste of as the videographer because in a lot of ways, the videographer kind of just kind of mm -hmm. follows the photographer's uh, leadership in a way. Um, tell me about that process, too. I mean, in a lot of ways, the photographer is a wedding planner as well. Oh, for, yeah, absolutely. Especially like, I mean, I do a lot of these smaller elopements and stuff. And I am the wedding planner. Like, I'm helping them <laughs> find the locations. I'm helping them coordinate if there's anybody nearby i'm helping them find florists and hair people and and all sorts of stuff but yeah especially on the day usually the coordinator for the first half of the day or so is coordinating the people that are setting things up and making sure that everything on the setup process is working well and then i'm the one in charge of the timeline usually up until at least the ceremony um and so i'm you know in charge of making sure everyone's getting dressed on time and we're doing you know all the portraits and getting to these different places and yeah there's a ton of like other aspects that no one would ever consider that definitely play a huge part in, in like making sure that you're dealing with like what happens when there's a bunch of drunk groomsmen or <laughs> people aren't doing stuff on time and you know posing people and uh going along with the random bridesmaids silly idea for a group photo that you don't really <laughs> want to do and like managing like how much of like a do i want to shut this down or do i want to go along with it and yeah. how is that going to affect like the mood of everything and yeah. yeah there's a ton of other like outside of photography decisions you have to 
yeah, think you, about, I guess. You do have to be really positive. You have to be <laughs> a, a kind, uh, empathetic person to do it because it is easy to uh, sometimes you know be like, eh, that's a terrible idea. No, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. And then, yeah, <laughs> it's a buzzkill and it ruins the whole evening. You, you, you want everybody to be on your side, really. <laughs> so Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the whole beginning of the day is like a warm-up for the rest of the day. You're hoping to just get people comfortable around you, right? Have you done portrait photography as well? You've done other things outside of wedding, mm-hmm. right? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I've learned as a commercial shooter when I was doing weddings was when I would work with producers and people outside of the wedding industry – when they see you work, they're like, dang, you're fast, man. Like you're, <laughs> yeah, I can't believe this. And then if you talk to other, in your case, if you talk to other portrait photographers who maybe have never even shot weddings and you compare notes on how you, you work with each other, it is amazing how slow, like in my case, Hollywood, you know, that style, it is yeah. so unbelievably slow and yeah. ridiculously, in my opinion, uh, overly like there's too many people <laughs> doing things that honestly one person could easily do but obviously in a hollywood standard you know there's a a hierarchy that that works and there's a reason for it and i've learned why that exists but um as a wedding shooter when you go into these non-wedding environments as a commercial shooter uh often people are surprised and and i didn't really think anything of it because that's just how i work but when you become a wedding photographer or a videographer you hone these skills and you you have to be so fast Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like you're working off of efficiency and you're making just tons of micro decisions about like, okay, if I take another couple minutes, like how is this going to affect the rest of the day or like the mood of things? And Mm -hmm. you're often just like trying to make good portraits and other (laughs) photos out of nothing. Uh, You know, like it's just like, hey, here's like this random little vignette of space that like could make a good photo in a seemingly terrible thing and i think that's sort of the the reason why i find that there, i have a ton of wedding photographer friends that are just super creative and it's because like all those limitations are just like forcing the creativity out of you because you don't have the time to set up a bunch of lights and like get a perfect backdrop and like yeah. think through all these things it's like constantly moving on your feet and uh yeah usually my time to scout portrait locations is like two minutes <laughs> as i'm walking with the like you know entire wedding party or something yeah and often uh, you, you know, maybe if you're in the middle of eating dinner and then something happens, yeah. <laughs> you, you have to just drop it and go. Uh, some of my favorite moments are like when the photographers and the videographers are all sitting at a table eating dinner and then somebody starts giving a toast <laughs> and we all just, we're like mid conversation, like literally saying something and then we all just like hear it and we just run without even yep. saying anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 it's a language. <laughs> it's yeah, it's the worst. Cause it's like, great. Now I'm not going to eat. Um, we used to have in our contract that we eat what the guests eat because (laughs) often if you have certain wedding planners, they just give you these cold sandwiches and it's like, really? Yep. (laughs) Oh, totally. (laughs) Yeah. The the highest budget weddings that I've done, you know, weddings (laughs) that are like 500, $600,000 weddings and they give you like a cold hot dog or something. You're like, what in the world? The food budget was $80,000 and you gave me a, like a cold hot dog? Really? <laughs> Come on. But yes, yeah, it's how it works. And, and good luck if you have any dietary restrictions as a wedding photographer. Oh, yeah. No, you're if you put If you put that in your contract, then nobody's going to read that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They read it the one time when they you know signed it or whatever, a year before the wedding. Yeah. And it's not like they're sharing that contract with the catering staff or anything. So. Yeah. 
<laughs> my friend uh, was gluten intolerant, who was one of our mm-hmm. shooters, and he would j- he ended up just bringing stuff because it was like oh, totally. every wedding he ended up just eating green beans and like a yep. salad, and that's it because he couldn't even eat the chicken because it was like breaded or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. I have like a, a weird like a tree nut allergy, and like at weddings, every single salad has nuts in it and stuff, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes the meat does too. So I'm like always trying to like pick through stuff and then i'm also the weird guy that's like oh that guy doesn't want salad weirdo like that must not be healthy i'm like no no, i can't eat it um yeah i I think you and i could easily go back and forth and just share funny like wedding stories nonstop. and uh you know it's 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 a fun (laughs) kind of uh thing to be a part of because when you have other people that that do it it is kind of its own niche in the in this industry and oh absolutely uh pinterest instagram have really (laughs) caused the wedding industry in general to become extremely materialistic and uh people compare their photos to other people's photos what do you have to say about just the whole industry whether it's corrupt or not like when my parents got married i think they spent you know fourteen hundred dollars they got married at a church the photos are terrible, but they're, they were happy with them. Everybody looked really happy in the photos. You know, they had like a cheap uh, cake that they bought at like, you know, Kroger or whatever. I mean, thing it's become such an industry now. Uh, what do you have to say about that? Maybe somebody's listening who is getting married soon. Uh, you know, how do you stay honest and true inside of the wedding industry? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's just such weird expectations surrounding weddings, too, just like culturally. And then, yeah, I mean, weddings have obviously just become such a thing, especially with social media. But like what I try to just tell people in general when I'm meeting with anybody and talking to them about their wedding is just like figure out the stuff that you actually care about and like prioritize that, like make an actual list of like, here are my priorities for a wedding day. And then once you start budgeting things out, like make sure that your budgets are aligning with the things you actually care about. Uh Because so many people are always just having to make like these decisions about like what they actually want at their wedding. And they, you know, they think they have to have this, you know, these certain chairs or this certain thing, or like they have to have uh, a certain type of meal catered. And it's just like, you know, people are there to celebrate you. Like, you could order pizza for 200 people and they would be just as stoked as if you spent a ridiculous amount of money (laughs) giving them like mediocre chicken, you know, Um, and find ways that like you can celebrate in the ways you actually want to. Like if you want to have a six hour dance party at the end, like prioritize having a six hour dance party at the end. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like if you want to, like uh, I had a couple, a couple years ago, they were both photographers. And so they were like, we want to get our portraits taken at like golden hour And it was going to like kind of mess with the whole timing of everything. And so they're like, we just want our guests to enjoy golden hour too. And so like we went down to the lake and took a bunch of golden hour portraits and all the guests went down there too. And so I had like 40 other photographers over my back taking photos, but like at the same time, it's like, that's who their guests were and they wanted them to experience golden hour down by the lake. And so, yeah, yeah, I think there's just this cultural pressure to do a ton of stuff uh, that most couples don't actually like want to do and especially like prioritizing financially um you know they're spending eight hundred dollars on a cake and they like they're not even gonna eat it and you know it's just like there's (laughs) just so much stuff like that or 
you know, people that are spending like $15,000 on florals and like all these things are good. If you love them, if you like love florals and you want to spend 15 grand on that, like <laughs> rock and roll, like that's amazing. But at the same time, like I, I just know I've heard from so many people that just regretted spending money yeah. or prioritizing time or whatever on certain things. Um, and I think that's why a ton of people are starting to do a lot more of smaller elopements and mm -hmm. things, especially cause you can go to a national park and pay, uh, I don't even know what the actual permit fee is to get married in a national park, but it's not high in comparison to spending, you know, 20 grand on a venue. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think people are, are seeing that there's a lot of ways to make things meaningful and beautiful. It don't necessarily mm -hmm. always necessitate spending hundreds of thousands or tens yeah. of thousands, even of dollars on the whole th process. Right. You know, what's ironic is, uh, and I'm sure you can speak to this too, is some of the most beautiful and, uh, kind of just amazing weddings were those cheap you know diy mm -hmm. weddings where it's like you know i know the bride and groom maybe spent three or four grand on the whole thing um the whole family pitched in and helped make mason jar candle things yeah. and <laughs> you know the the bride's mom made the dress or whatever you know like it's totally just, those types of things are uh and and like you're doing with these these really beautiful travel things i mean it, it that's where it's, it's all about the heart. It's all about the couple at that point. You remove yeah. the, the things and what's left is people. And that's the thing about weddings that's so beautiful is when you remove the items and the material mm -hmm. from it, it's all about a beautiful thing, you know, marriage, family. I remember for my wedding, that was what was so amazing was seeing my mom's side, my dad's side, my wife's family all hanging out and talking to each other. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm never going to see this again. Like they're, they're not all going to be in the same room, you know, unless yeah, one of us dies. Absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, hopefully that won't happen anytime soon. Cause I, <laughs> yeah, geez, yeah. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Um, Sheesh. so yeah. Uh, anyways, I think people who hate <laughs> me talking about every, I, I do get comments like, Dave, we know you shot weddings. You talk about it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I bring it up all the time. I think one of the reviews on our iTunes page says, Dave <laughs> talks about weddings too much. Um, but in this context, guys, this makes yeah. perfect sense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Binge is a wedding photographer. Um, so to kind of transition into uh, film photography and, and that whole side of things, yeah. um, you know, <clears throat> what t tell me about your passion with that i i have a passion for leicas unfortunately both of my <laughs> film leicas that were family heirlooms were stolen when i had the robbery happen yeah that's right a couple of months ago so Ugh. uh i thankfully have that serial number i have both serial numbers um leicas obviously like when you sell them often the serial number is is part of that ebay listing or whatever mm -hmm. so i have a feeling <clears throat> and i'm i'm kind of praying and hoping that one day uh, I have those those serial numbers saved on my eBay and everything. So I have yeah. a feeling that like maybe in 10 or 20 years, I'll find it. Sheesh. But because Leicas aren't just thrown away, like they're always, you know, somebody has yeah. it, somebody's collecting it. So I have a feeling that I'll get it one day. But dude, hopefully <laughs> it was my great uncles that he took all the pictures of my 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 dad growing up in the 60s and 70s with that same yeah. Leica and he gave it to me. It's a M3 with a 50 Sumicron. It was Dude, beautiful. Come on. Yeah. It was in mint condition too. So <sighs> anyways, but um, Brutal. you're a big Leica guy, film <laughs> mm -hmm. photographer. Um, you've started your YouTube channel recently and a lot of the content is uh, film related. In fact, it seems like almost all of it is, but Pretty, mostly, yeah. <laughs> um, and there's definitely be, been a, a huge resurgence in, in film photography. So tell me about your passion with Dude. film photography. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, and sort sort of similar to your whole thing, like, you know, you had a, a relative that, you know, passed on a camera to you as well. Like when I started photography, uh, my my uncle let me borrow his Hasselblad 500CM, uh, which was definitely more of a camera than I was probably ready for at the time. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's for those of you who don't like follow film, it's a, a medium format six by six camera that has like a waist level finder. Wow. And uh, the Hasselblads are like what NASA sent to the moon, right? So they're like super <laughs> high quality and uh, have a huge legacy. And then my dad gave me his Nikon F2 and so sort of at the start of my whole photography process, like film was there. Um, and then I also had these cameras that had sort of like personal and family significance to me. Um, and especially like in, I, you know, early 2000, 2007 was my first wedding. And then um, I started shooting film a little bit more in like 2009. And especially back then, like there weren't photo presets and editing wasn't that great. Uh, and so you could... And everything was just super digital. Like the, you know, the original 5D series was great, but like trying to make like good classic edits of photos in like the mid 2000s, like wasn't that great. And then you'd go shoot film and you get the scans back and you'd be like, oh my gosh, these look incredible. Like this is what I want. <laughs> yeah. So I was always trying to like emulate film sort of in my editing before, you know, film presets ever existed. Um, but sort of in that whole vein, like it's just always sort of been a bit of an anchor point to me. Uh, I just love shooting film and especially I do a lot of traveling and now I have a family. And so going out with a film camera that's a little bit slower and uh, you just have to be more intentional about a lot of the aspects of it. And then when you're done shooting, you take a photo, you can't look at the back and see it and see if you screwed it up or not so you just take the photo and you move on you know you're not like dumping a memory card at the end of the day on your vacation with your family or something and so there's just something about shooting film for me at least that like keeps me in the moment a little bit more than shooting digital would where you know you're looking at the back of the screen you're importing the footage or the the photos later and so yeah it's become just a huge part of like my own personal work and then obviously transitions into my professional work as well and uh I would imagine that you, I mean, often the problem with film photography people is it turns into a, an obsession or a collection. <laughs> do you have a collect, yeah. do you have a collection now of, uh, of older cameras? Oh yeah. I have a, no one can see it, but I have like a cabinet behind me that just is full of film cameras and <laughs> they're, you know, like it's like jewelry, you can buy beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Like you can buy great film cameras. Like you can buy a great film camera that'll take Canon EF lenses for like 15 bucks. <laughs> so it's like, there's sort of no excuse not to shoot them. Uh, but also like just, you know, the amount of money you can spend to get like a really high quality film camera compared to like a new digital camera. Uh, it just makes it a lot easier to start picking up random film cameras yeah. than it would be to buy, you know, a bunch of new digital cameras every couple of years. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the new Canon R5 was just announced. It's $4,000. You know, the R6 is 2500 which, by the way, I'm excited about both of those, Dude, of course. so stoked. Um, and then, obviously, so I'm, I'm curious to see Sony's offering and Panasonic yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I'm a gearhead, so that's what I'm... <laughs> Dude, same. Yeah, but... we could talk about those cameras and, like, speculate <laughs> about what Sony's doing for an entire podcast, too, and I'd be 100% on board. Heck, yeah. Um, and, uh, but what's cool about the film photography cameras is, uh, they're mechanical, just like mm -hmm. the difference between, uh, you know, a Tesla and, uh, a 76 Mustang. Like it, they're, mm -hmm. 
there's a craftsmanship and a, a handmade aspect to it, especially on the higher end with the Hasselblads and the Leicas, where mm-hmm. it's like getting a uh, a Rolex or you know a Rolls Royce. They are just well made, you know. In Leica's case, German engineered, <laughs> incredible yeah. machines, and um, you just can't beat that. And it's that's why they hold their value so well. I mean, a a, a, a '60s M3 is still gonna sell for over a thousand dollars. You know. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and especially in the resurgence of this whole thing, like I bought an M6 uh, two and a half years ago for like twelve hundred bucks, which was like still a, a pretty decent deal. But now they're like over two two thousand really? bucks. Like oh they've gosh. almost wow. almost doubled in the last like couple of years, just because there's been such a giant resurgence of i mean honestly like you know film youtubers and stuff like that there's just been such a big community around it you know kodak's making more film and uh yeah it's it's crazy and the cool thing for me like because i shoot uh like a digital cameras that's what i shoot for all my digital work too um and so i can use the same lenses between bodies and they're tiny and um so i can shoot like my like m2 with a relatively new 50 sumalux uh-huh. and i can just plop that back over to like my m240s and shoot it digitally and yeah. having that whole system is just yeah super cool well i think you know i think that's actually how i found you is because i'm a, yeah. such a leica <laughs> fanboy and now i'm remembering the fact that you just brought that up you're a leica shooter for weddings uh-huh what is yep. wrong with you <laughs> i i know yeah so tell me about okay so for people who aren't familiar with leica m bodies Let's start there. Tell mm-hmm. them what that is, and then also why you choose to shoot on a camera that, in a lot of working photographers' opinion, is not the right tool <laughs> for the job because it's so slow. But t- but yeah. tell me, give me your your pitch on why you you choose that as your tool. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, I shoot with uh, the Leica M. They're they're small. They're mirrorless. Before like mirrorless was really a thing, sort of in that way. Um, rangefinder style body so if you've ever picked up like a super old camera they have this weird little rangefinder patch in the middle which basically means you have to superimpose this little like window over something else to get it to be in focus which for most people shooting any sort of moving subject just seems like the worst idea in the world <laughs> um but i've just been i've been doing weddings for forever and i've always been on canon and i was shooting with the original 5d then the 5d mark ii then the 5d mark iii um and I like broke the AF manual, like the autofocus manual focus button off of like my 35 because I was always having to manual focus, then flip it back on. And um, I just had so many issues with that before I learned about back button focusing. And I could just never trust the autofocus. And it was so hard to see. I would buy like the like the super precision matte, you know, screens to put in there. And I could just never get it right. And so when I figured out that I could shoot with a rangefinder, that as long as like the mechanical process is correct and it's functioning correctly, if you line those two things up, like it is in focus. And so I just started practicing using that. And the nice thing about weddings is they're like we talked about earlier, they're pretty predictable. <laughs> like yeah. there's usually not like a big all of a sudden someone's like running at you full speed or something. Uh-huh. Uh, so people are usually walking at a consistent pace. So you can manually focus them coming towards you at a consistent pace. And as long as you kind of line those two things up, they work really well. And then I also do a ton of like more environmental portraiture in environments that are really dark sometimes. Uh-huh. Um 
And so I can't shoot at a larger depth of field. So I'm often shooting at like 1.4 in a forest or something with my subjects far away. And my cameras would never focus that correctly with like a 35. Yeah. It was someone like 25 feet away at 1.4. Sure. It would just mess that up. Um, and so I started shooting with these rangefinders and just found that that system like clicked in my brain. Uh-huh. Um, and then I, yeah, I just kind of learned how to do it. And then I also realized I had to, you know, work more to do it. So I was focusing more on my craft. And then yeah. uh, I was getting the same amount of keeper images at the same time of taking about half the amount of photos. Mm. So I used to take like 4,000 photos. Now I take like a little under 2,000 and the same amount of keepers at the end of the day because I used to just like have to mash through on the autofocus and just pray one of them was in focus. <laughs> now I just take like a few and like I know they're in focus. So I like almost yeah. never miss focus with the system too, which is, yeah, definitely bizarre. So what's the current body that you're shooting on, the M10? Oh yeah, I wish I had the the cash flow to buy two M10s. No, I so I shoot I shoot with two M240s, okay. which came out in like 2013 or 2012 or something. Like they're fairly old, um, but shooting with that system and then that glass, like I have a 50 Sumalux, uh, which is just like my mainstay, and then some Zeiss glass and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, it just produces like amazing stuff and sort of like we said something about it earlier, but like the the limitation of that camera like forces me to be more creative and figure out ways around the fact that I don't have autofocus and I don't have really great low light capabilities. And so yeah. I have to figure out other ways to like sort of make that stuff work. The other thing about it that's kind of like, you know, for any mirrorless camera, it's a really small little system. Like they're tiny cameras and I'm like, you know, over six feet tall, like not a small person, have a beard, probably not the most like unintimidating person in the world. <laughs> and so coming up to somebody with these like cameras that look like they're from the 1950s yeah. and photographing someone, I feel like I just look like they're like weird art friend from college that just like showed up to take these photos. You know, I'm like walking around with film cameras and these digital cameras that look like film cameras. And so they're the, the, more, much more like unassuming than when I was showing up with five D's with battery grips and trying to get yeah. people to take me more seriously. Uh -huh. I'm now at the point where I'm trying to have people take me less seriously. So they have their guard down a little bit. I can get yeah. more candid images. The shutter sound too on those is so much less intimidating too. It's just like a little, Oh, totally. Instead yeah. of, instead of the, you know, with the DSLR. Absolutely. But I mean, so I understand that whole mirrorless argument, you know, maybe six years ago, but now mm -hmm. with Sony a seven bodies with, uh, even now with the Canon R system, yeah. uh, Fuji's GFX 100, which is a mirrorless, Dude, ridiculous. a medium format, basically it's a large format, you know, what do you have to, what's your argument now in 2020? Is it, is it about <laughs> the craft of it and the, yeah. the way that it forces you to work? Because the, the physical of it now, I feel like the technology is caught up to Leica and now mm -hmm. the size advantage, you can buy small uh, lenses for Sony bodies that are autofocus, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, like I would never, uh, especially if someone's like starting out or whatever, I wouldn't be like, you know what you should buy? A Leica. <laughs> that doesn't have any autofocus and is generally inferior in terms of like a lot of the technology, you know, technological aspects of it. I would definitely say, you know, like go buy an EOS R or especially like the R6 that's going to have dual SD cards and like amazing eye track autofocus and stuff. Um, but for, for me, it's so much more about like the process. And I've just fallen into that system at a time where before that I, I wasn't getting consistent enough results with 5D Mark III that 
I had to pivot and try something else. I fell into that system. I love it, and it works really well. I think I could pick up a Sony A9 or a A7 III or uh, an R6 or something like that and just be like completely competent, and it would be amazing. And I would probably get some photos that I wouldn't get if I was shooting these Leicas. But then at the same time, I probably am getting photos that I wouldn't get if I was shooting something that was a little bit easier yeah. um, and did more of the work for me, right? I love that. So. I love that mentality and I, I relate to it a lot myself too. I, one of my favorite musicians is uh, Jack White mm -hmm. from, you know, formerly White Stripes, yeah. but um, he is an incredible guitar player and his whole philosophy, like he does everything analog and yeah. obviously with music now, things have gotten so good with digital that you can pretty much even copy the warmth of what an album or what tape used to sound like mm -hmm. digitally. You can, you can uh, do these incredible you know, simulations of amps and all this stuff. It's gotten so good that I really do think as even as a purist, it's kind of like, okay, well, I don't think anybody really can tell the difference anymore, but there's a philosophy mm -hmm. and there's a, a workflow to the way that he creates records. And he, he, he chooses guitars that are like, that don't hold tuning he, <laughs> yeah. that are like, you would buy them on his, in a Sears magazine for 200 bucks mm -hmm. in the sixties. And he's like, I want to kind of struggle to get, the art out of this awful tool like I, he's <laughs> like i want to work hard to achieve a good sound or a good tone and that might be very artsy or whatever but for you i, I can i can kind of see as a film photographer and as a film nut it isn't practical to shoot an entire wedding with film when you're doing mm -hmm. one a week or every other week or whatever yeah. and there are wedding there are actually believe it or not there are some great film wedding yeah. shooters out oh, absolutely. there they charge a little bit more so that they can develop and whatever but um but the leica system the m240 system is a good in between of like you get the the workflow of a film camera mm -hmm. but you have the convenience of digital and um, totally and there's something about again the craftsmanship of those camera that particular brand in general leica even if the sensor isn't as good as a modern Sony sensor in terms of dynamic range and color information. Uh, the build of it and the way that when you hold it, you can feel that there is a human that put it together and the way that it <laughs> works, it's like it inspires you as an artist. It's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean like even uh, the, the M240 is I think, yeah, like eight years old and it still probably costs you use more than a brand new Canon R6 would. <laughs> and like, it's clearly an inferior camera in so many ways, technically. But yeah, there's something to be said about being yeah. inspired by the gear you use and wanting to use it. And uh, yeah, especially like having that limitation to like force yourself to think harder and um, yeah, have to come up with like all sorts of creative solutions around being stuck with that gear, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, that's funny you use the Jack White analogy. Someone literally commented on, I think, my M240 video recently and was like, calm down, man. You're not like the Jack White of photography. <laughs> like, you don't have to use these cameras. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's funny that I brought that up. That's, yeah. that's the, the comparison. And I think there is something there. I mean, I don't know. If I choose cameras. I shoot on the Olympus EM1 Mark III. Um, before that, I was shooting on the 1DC, even when the mm -hmm. ESR was out and when modern cameras are out. I've always chosen tools that are different, that are unique. I want my images to look different than other people's. You know, everybody and totally. their mother is shooting on Sony right now. Uh, Canon, even the ESR. I'm not a huge fan of the... I know people rave about the color science on those cameras, and they are great, but... 
it's become sort of vanilla now to shoot on those types of tools and mm -hmm. it's like yeah practically a c200 for video is like the best all-around video camera but it's kind of boring it doesn't inspire me you know mm -hmm. um i like with my 1dc i was like shooting everything manual you know <laughs> um i had to convert the files it was like it was like a struggle to get the thing to give me what i wanted but when i got the image out of it it's like people would respond like this looks amazing it looks so cool because people haven't people don't see that image it's it's a unique image so i would yeah. want i'm wondering too like do people are have you had any bookings from people that are like i love the fact that you shoot on these cameras like has that ever come mm -hmm. up as part of the of your hiring process yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think I think my clientele, my 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 client base is about 50-50. Like 50% 50 are people that are just normally sort of like outdoors people. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then about half of them are people that are creatives in some way, whether they're designers or oh, I cool. shoot a lot of weddings for other wedding photographers, like that nice. they themselves are photographers. You're so a, ph a photographer's photographer. <laughs> yeah. Which is like really cool. Um, it is sort of to be honored to be able to do that kind of thing. But yeah, I get a lot of people that like want to also talk shop about like yeah. the cameras that I'm using. And there's definitely something to be said about like shooting something that no one else is shooting. There's probably like I don't even know, 10 people that shoot the same cameras that I do and the same lenses for weddings like in the world, I would assume. Yeah. So um, yeah, getting something unique and something that's just different than everybody else and whether it's just subtle or not, like thankfully a lot of my client base like is the people that would notice that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, like there's definitely something to try to like stand out in the industry that's like incredibly saturated. If you had the money right now, what would you upgrade? Would you go to M10 or would you go SL2 or what? Yeah, no, I would definitely, I would take, I would choose the M10 over the SL2 just because like that rangefinder system is something that I'm just super into. Um, I would probably buy the GFX either 100 or the yeah. 50R. Um, and then oddly enough, like I really want to see what comes out with this Sony A7S three or whatever. For video especially, yeah. For video, but like even for me, like 12 megapixels is still okay. And if it's a low light, just like monster, yeah, I think that would be super cool to have a low light, even like, you know, still camera that just does like incredibly okay. well in low light. As a wedding photographer, you're stuck in <laughs> low light situations yeah, all the time. That's true. And um, I think Leica lenses, Leica M lenses pair so nicely on mm -hmm. mirrorless bodies because they balance so perfectly. So you could still use your same glass on that camera too, if you wanted to. Totally. Yeah. It'd yeah. be awesome. Um, do, do you have, do you have a cue? Do you have a, like a cue or have you ever thought about getting one? Uh, I don't have one personally. No. Cause like, I feel like the cue is something I would use for like personal stuff. Yeah. More. That's what I was wondering. Um, and then cause 28 is also like, it's one of my favorite focal lengths, but is the one that I was having the most issue with getting critical focus. Okay. And so I feel really good about using a 28 millimeter on an M body, like a rangefinder. Um, and so, yeah, that's like why I haven't ever what's done your, that. But I, yeah. What's, what's your lens package? What, what are your go-tos for a wedding? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have a, a Voigtlander 21 1.8, wow, a uh, Voigtlander 28 F2, uh, Zeiss 35 1.4 Distagon, the Leica 50 millimeter Sumalux Aspherical, and then I have a like a 1980s 90 Sumicron, which is like an F2. 
Oh, perfect. So you got the whole the whole gamut, and I bet it all fits in yeah. a side satchel, doesn't it? Oh, it's, it's so small. Yeah, it's so tiny. The yeah. lenses are like incredibly small, and the 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 quality. I don't know what it is. I guess it's just the rangefinder system, the physics of it. Um, somehow they're able to cram so much quality in such a tiny package. I don't yeah, that was like always the thing about Leicas is their glass is just ridiculous, and I think we're seeing that with like the new mirrorless stuff, like those new RF lenses and all of the Sony stuff is just like ridiculous because of you don't have the distance between the last element and the sensor. You know, you have those, you know, whatever that focal stuff is. I don't even know what it is. But then with uh, the Leica stuff too, like there's no autofocus motors in there. There's no True. image stabilization. So you can build these lenses in such tiny, tiny, tiny little packages, um, which for me, like I, I did this hiking elopement the other day that was, you know, like over 2000 vertical feet. And I was able to pack like three camera or four cameras and five lenses because <laughs> it's just like, you can go up there and shove it all in a tiny backpack and still have room for jackets and water and stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, iPhone photography, I think I think what's happening in the mobile world is really interesting and fascinating. And I, I did touch on this with Chris Nichols uh, last week. And um, I, I wish that more companies were implementing what we're seeing with like machine learning with, with iPhones, with Absolutely. Pixel. I know that you're like, at least on your Instagram, I've seen a couple of iPhone photos that mm -hmm. look amazing. Um, do you have a passion for that type of photography as well? And can you speak to mobile photography? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've actually done a little bit of not work with Apple on the iPhone specifically, but definitely like have had, uh, you know, like iPhone loaner units and been able to talk to their dev team about, um, you know, future features and stuff like that, which has been, been super cool. But there's just something about, yeah, like if Apple made a camera, like how incredible that thing would be, yes. oh my even if they just took one of the, you know, like these amazing Sony sensors and were just able to like, yeah, like do computational photography. And I think one of the most sort of frustrating things out of it is like, I posted this, this particular photo that um, we're sort of talking about from this elopement that we've been talking about as well. And the dynamic range that, because it's able to do like such fast HDR and just like layer all this stuff. The dynamic range in this iPhone photo in comparison to my Leica photos that are taken with like a $7,000 kit are just unreal. Like I have yeah. blown highlights after I even, you know, like underexposed by a couple stops to try to get as much information. And then you take one photo on an iPhone and it's able to just slap all that stuff in together into one exposure. Mm -hmm. And as a photographer, you're like, what the heck? Like you're, <laughs> you're getting more dynamic range out of this like phone with the smallest sensor ever. Um, than you can out of this giant full frame sensor and all these amazing colors and you know four thousand dollar lenses and stuff. Yeah, and by the way, everybody who's listening, if you look at your phone right now, I've put a picture <laughs> of it on the thumbnail. You can do this with podcasts if you're not aware, so you can see what we're talking oh, about. Epic. If you just look at your phone right now uh, on your podcast player, um, yeah, the sky is just incredible. It's holding all the highlights of the clouds. And then if you look down on the rocks, the detail and the shadows of the rocks, I can even see into the folds of his, his fabric on his suit and everything. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing what these cameras can do with the computational photography stuff now. Uh, the problem with it is if you printed that on a large <laughs> print, you would see the flaws in the resolution and in the lens. But on, totally. in on Instagram it works perfect. Have you ever pulled out your phone and done this uh, practically? Like as I know you posted this on Instagram and, and stuff, mm -hmm. but are you going to like, do you treat it like a professional tool? Have you ever used it in this type of scenario 
that you would actually deliver it or is this just kind of an Instagram post for you? Yeah, it's I mean it's sort of like a little bit of both. Like so I I like text like what sort of part of the thing is like everyone's always excited to get these photos back and to like you know import these photos and do all this stuff and then get the professional ones out to people is a, a whole process in itself right so if i can take some photos throughout the day on my phone and especially as the phones are getting better and better um then i'm able to just like get down to the bottom of this particular one jump in my car process some of these in lightroom and just like text them straight to the couple and then yeah. they have something that I was able to take on my phone real quick um, that they can, you know, text out to their friends and family or post to their own social media and stuff. And so, yeah, it's really cool in that way. And I've definitely had, um, you know, photos that I've delivered, uh, especially especially in these kind of environments where there's like a lot of dynamic range. And I have I had one um, from Yosemite a couple of years ago where there was just the sunset that came out so much better on the iPhone than it did on my <laughs> professional cameras. And I think there's something yeah, that's frustrating about that, but also kind of beautiful. But like you said, like it's going to fall apart just because of the actual physical limitations of um, the lens and the sensor size and the resolution and stuff if you were going to print it large. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely worthwhile doing. And for most people's personal use, like, can you imagine like how great everyone has a phone in their pocket for the most part that can take incredible photos. And so the idea that, you know, you have to spend thousands of dollars to take amazing photos of your family or whatever is just not really the case because no. the thing that's in most people's pockets is pretty incredible. Exactly. And I, uh, it's gotten better and better each year. And, uh, I, like I, was looking at a Leica Q or the uh, what's it the the Raikou GR three that just came mm -hmm. out, uh, the Fuji X one hundred. I love those little point and shoot like cameras for uh, just everyday kind of home videography and photography. But as the iPhones continue to get better and better, and, and on the Android side, I think the Pixel has such an incredible image mm -hmm. as well. Um, and even some of the Samsungs have gotten better and better as well. But it's kind of like I don't know, like the the bar for the quality for just pure documentation of, of family. Mm -hmm. I feel like it doesn't have to be super high, but then when I do take a portrait of my son on a really nice camera with a large sensor with mm -hmm. uh, shallow depth of field, I might not realize it right now because he's still two years old right now, but like in mm -hmm. 10, 20 years from now, I think having a print or a, you know, a portrait of him with a 50 on a large sensor, like I still think there is value there. Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, there's definitely a lot of times where like I'll shoot some photos on my iPhone and then a lot of like usually on like a film camera or something like that. Um, so one of the things that we do like for my son's birthday, not to get like into kid stuff, but uh, <laughs> on, on his birthday every year, I go through and like all the photos I've taken and make a bunch of four by six prints of, of all of them. We shove them on the wall and stuff like that and just like plaster one of our walls with all these four by six prints. And the cool thing is like, you know, a bunch of them are like ones that I've taken on my phone or like my wife's taken and then they're kind of like interspersed with like the higher quality, higher resolution ones. So it's just yeah. cool to have, you know, something on your phone that helps you kind of like remember that stuff by, but then also to take, you know, some time to get some like better portraits that are going to last a little bit longer and have more kind of like of a timeless look to them uh, than, you know, the more kind of like, because the iPhone does have a look, right? Yeah, it does, um, yeah. And so people are going to look back in 10, 20 years and be like, oh yeah, like that was a good iPhone photo, but it's still <laughs> going to have like that phone kind of look just like the 
you know, janky '90s mom cameras had when <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid. What if uh, what if the iPhone gets so good when my son is my age? You know, in 20, 20 years, uh, well, I guess almost thirty years. Jeez, I'm turning thirty this year, boys. Dude, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. It's actually in like a couple weeks. So, nice. um, <laughs> but. Uh, what if there's like a filter for for I, the iPhone gets so good that it like actually looks like a full frame camera, but there's like yeah. a filter that like gets rid of all the depth of field and adds like a, a crappy <laughs> HDR like look to it. And it's like, look, this looks like a old retro iPhone picture. And it's like, Dude, why? Like, it's going to happen. <laughs> the way that the, uh, the way that my parents are like, why would you use a camera that simulates a VHS tape? Yeah. You know? Um, <laughs> But like we're gonna be saying that like why on earth would you add a crappy iPhone effect to it? Yeah, dude, there, there's just something to be said about like nostalgia and bringing you back to those moments. And so yeah. I guarantee you, in like 20 years, someone's gonna ma be making like you know mid 2015s like <laughs> filters to like make your amazing photos look janky again. But it is exciting because. Pretty much every year over year, the iPhone, especially the the technology and the camera, just continues to get better and better. This year brought a lot with the iPhone 11 Pro. I personally own an iPhone SE 2, and um, it's using old sensor from the iPhone 8 and the same lens from the iPhone 8. But because the the chip, the i the Apple silicon is so good, mm -hmm. um, it actually changes the quality of the images, even though it's an older camera. So I think uh, as technology progresses we're just going to see so many incredible things so that's exciting i just wish that the Absolutely. camera manufacturers would like license that technology from apple and put it in a in a dslr sized body you know i would be surprised if no one's tried you know like yeah. if i was a camera company i would be like trying to do that i think the interesting thing is like that there's just not more customization i guess but at the same time like a lot of the things that I've always heard about Apple is they want it to be like almost like dummy proof. They don't yeah. want to add a bunch of extra features that the average person is going to end up clicking through and screwing up. They want to like perfect what's going on. Yeah. And I do wish that like, you know, cameras would add raw processing into their stuff and allow you to make more adjustments than they do and stuff. But yeah, you man, like the, the technology that happens in iPhone cameras and stuff, if you could get like, a quarter of that into my DSLRs, <laughs> man, it yeah. makes such a difference. I mean, one of the things that I brought up in my interview with Chris is like now both Apple and, and Google are like using machine learning to detect where the human subject is and they're mm -hmm. isolating that and adjusting the skin tones to look correct. But then keeping like if there's a sunset or you're in like a really tungsten environment, they're keeping the ambient light, the white balance mm -hmm. of that to be what the ambient is. So you can actually have good skin tones in an in a situation where it, the, the person actually looks better than in real life. Like it's doing <laughs> yeah. so many amazing things that I wish we could have on our, on the professional side, but whatever, we'll get it one day, I guess, but someday. Yeah. So you started a YouTube channel and we've talked about it a little bit. Tell me about your kind of your YouTube journey. Um, you've posted, <laughs> um, how many videos now? Like, I don't know, 20 or 30 I videos or something, yeah, but, something like that. Um, and you've, you've gathered a, a pretty good following in the last couple of, you know, for the last couple of months of work. I mean, you've got 11,000 subscribers, your content is great. You're getting good views, a lot of film related stuff. Tell me about mm -hmm. why you started YouTube and what your journey has been like so far, um, becoming a YouTuber. <laughs> I hate, you know, yeah. I, I hate using that word, but it is. No, it for is. sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that whole thing, I, I was just never in 
to YouTube, really. Like, I was the person that just, like, had it on my phone and would, like, pull it up when I needed to, like, change something I didn't know about on my car or fix my dryer or something. Like, <laughs> um, but then I started as I was getting into film more and more, and especially into the whole Leica system. You know, there's just not a lot of reviews about uh, random, you know, Leica M-mount lenses or different stuff where there's, like, you could type in, you know, Sony a7 III and the amount of video reviews would just be like astronomical. Um, and so part of the reason why I started one was just frankly out of the fact that there just aren't a lot about the stuff that I end up searching for. So there's just not a lot of like M240 videos that also talk about real life applications that I run into as a wedding photographer and as someone who's just doing stuff a lot. And so I, I realized I had sort of unique gear um, and there weren't a lot of videos about the stuff that I was shooting with. Uh -huh. um, and then the, uh, I'm trying to make this not sound bad, but a lot of the people too that like I would watch videos and the, the reviews would be like, okay, this oh, here's all the specs and everything like that. And then they would show me the sample photos and they would just be like, oh, here's some like flowers from my garden in the backyard or like yeah. just other photos that like weren't didn't give me any idea of like real world use. And so I was like, well, I'm like I'm a camera nerd about this kind of stuff. And I have like thousands as a wedding photographer, like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of examples of this kind of stuff. So I can like talk about my real world use of like tens of thousands of photos and then show some of those samples and hopefully be yeah more useful for people as well yeah one of your top viewed videos was the first uh look on the new film by kodak yeah um we've t touched on it a little bit in our conversation but it seems like kodak and and fuji have kind of almost gone back to some of their old manufacturing processes that they kind of mm -hmm. shut down for so many years there really is this huge resurgence in this world um how has the response been, you know, do you have contacts at Kodak and stuff? Like, are they, are they wanting you to do these YouTube videos and do you get kind of access to this new, <laughs> this new film stuff that's going on because of the channel or no. Yeah. So like, um, yeah, that, so that video that you're referring to is like, I was on a, a small thing called like the, they re-released a positive or like a slide film called ectochrome which they had discontinued uh, a while back and then they were bringing it back and so they sent it out to i think 10 different photographers uh around the world to kind of just test out put it through its paces send it back um so i got to be one of those 10 people and i didn't really have a youtube channel at that point like i wasn't oh, wow. really thinking about it but um as I was doing it, I was like, this would probably be really interesting. Maybe I should make a YouTube video about this, even though I am not in that scene at all. Don't really do it. So I just filmed a bunch of stuff on my iPhone and, you know, posted some real world examples. And uh, because I was the, I was able to post that as soon as they officially announced it and stuff, I realized like, oh, I was the only person posting about this. So <laughs> yeah. it was the first thing that would show up on, you know, Google and YouTube and stuff. And so cool. it was, I think, a couple hundred thousand views or something like that at this point. Um, and so it kind of gave me like a, Hey, this is, this could be a thing. Like maybe you should make some videos about this kind of stuff because, yeah, totally. uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely of interest to me. And then also like, I, yeah, have watched like videos by like my friend Matt day, who does a ton of like, oh, yeah. um, film related videos too. and stuff. He's yeah. Great. He's amazing. Super humble guy that, yeah, is just super knowledgeable. And I realized that like, there's probably just you know, maybe not hundreds of thousands of people like me that are searching for this Leica stuff and whatnot, but there's yeah. probably enough that would feel like this is entertaining enough or interesting enough to see, you know, the random cameras and gear that I'm using. Sure. 
and uh i mean have you are you taking it seriously in that you you want to <laughs> pursue it you know for extra like side income or like especially now with the pandemic have you kind of gotten mm -hmm. a little bit more into it or 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 is it just a side yeah. thing i mean that's fine too i just no for sure yeah it's definitely something that like i'm trying to take more seriously um I'm not like making it my full-time thing because I, I have that. I have like a Patreon where I like teach more stuff. I speak at workshops, uh, cool. do a lot of other things. But I feel like, yeah, um, especially with the pandemic, it was something that was already sort of on my radar of wanting to take a little bit more seriously. Mm -hmm. So I've definitely made way more videos in the last couple months than I had before. Um, but yeah, it was on my list of things to, to kind of pursue. But I think the hard part is like to get with any social media, like I with my Instagram account, like the whole success of that was me posting every single day for six years or something crazy like that. Five yeah. years. I don't know. Um, and so I think to grow a, an, a YouTube channel, it seems like you have to do it pretty consistently. Um, yeah. At least I would assume from my general knowledge of social media. So it's definitely something I'm trying to pursue and do more often for sure. But I'm not like quitting everything I have to start a YouTube channel at this point, but yeah, sure. it's definitely something that I hopefully feel like there there's a future for. So um, with your editing process, by the way, we're coming up on, <laughs> it's been an hour now. So we're, we've, we've had a good conversation. Hope I'm not burning you out too much. But um, <laughs> with your editing, when you're editing photos for a wedding, like how do you, how do you deal with that many files? Is there a certain workflow mm. that you use? And do you have presets that, that you've developed? Um, tell me about your workflow and, and how you're able to manage that, that many images. Yeah, totally. I actually have a YouTube video about my my workflow and my backup process and, and stuff like that, um, which probably could be super helpful to people that are, are dealing with hundreds of thousands of images a year. Um, but yeah, like I have a, an entire, I use like so many different software and I, I edit photos in Adobe Lightroom. Um, and I try, like my general thing is I try to make them look not like I'm not trying to emulate film, but I'm trying to use film as like the anchor point of like, I don't want to stray too far from these really like classic looks and colors. And so I've like created my own presets for that. Um, that yeah, give like, again, they're not like trying to be film, but they're also trying to like give better dynamic range and give classic colors without, uh, there's a lot of, uh, wedding photographers right now that are desaturating a ton of stuff and color selecting and stuff. So I'm trying to keep things a little bit more classic and also make things pretty easy, especially with dealing with man. Like you talked earlier about the whole, you know, being on a, a set of commercial photography and having to work a lot slower in that realm than, you know, me, I'm processing seven, 800, 900 photos for every client. And so, you know, I have to make stuff that's going to work fast. So, uh, yeah, I've spent a ton of time on a couple different preset packs that for me are super helpful. Um, and then, yeah, it's just like trying to, trying to make stuff that can make the process easier. Um, especially for someone that's editing, I don't know, I probably edit 50,000 at least photos a year. So it's crazy, man. <laughs> Yeah, and so I would encourage anybody who's listening, who's interested, to go check out your YouTube video. And you're you're actually selling those presets as well on on your site as well, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So if you have any interest in that, um, I think that's a great a great way. And I, I think pointing your your style and your your look towards film, not necessarily emulating it fully, but kind of going with that kind of the way that the light falls off and the way that the dynamic range mm -hmm. looks and stuff. I mean that's, I don't know, just classic it has such a great look to it. And, um, 
I love love the style and the color that you you have, and everybody should go check it out and, and look at your presets. You also got LUTs as well that that work for video. <laughs> so yeah. So to wrap this up, if there's somebody who's listening who wants to do what you're doing, or maybe even other things, you know, but still want to to be involved in similar type of stuff like what you're doing with weddings or just film photography in general. You know what? What's the best place to start? What do you What do you have to say to somebody who who comes up to you and asks, you know, how do I get started? How do I do what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think for most of it, I think you sort of just have to have a passion for like wanting to be creative, wanting to go out and do that stuff. I, I find a lot of people that are coming to me going like, oh, I'd love to do weddings, but they like don't want to pick up a camera and shoot stuff on their own, right? So like, I think having a just a general curiosity about photography and creativity and other people's cultures and stuff is just super important because that's going to be hopefully the stuff that's fun about the job that you want to continue to do. So for me, being able to shoot different films and different cameras and stuff like all that stuff is still fascinating for me and excites me and uh, allows me to get that kind of stuff done. Uh, I would say though, like for anybody that's wanting to do any sort of like freelance creative work, like what would probably be more important than taking like a photography course or degree would be like get like a marketing degree or take more business classes uh, because there's so much and so many amazing artists out there that I know that just kind of like have done it for a couple of years and they couldn't manage their finances well or they couldn't figure out how to do their taxes well and stuff like that. And the vast majority of the work being a wedding photographer has actually not much to do with like actually photographing people. It's, you know, getting your name out there and managing clients and doing all the bookkeeping and all that other stuff. So it's not the cool, sexy answer, but it's sort of like the, the responsible longevity answer. That's so true. I mean, um, in a lot of ways, especially with the wedding, uh, photography business, it is a little bit more of a consumer product than anything. Cause you're mm -hmm. dealing with non-professionals. You're not working with producers and actors. You're working with, you know, normal people. And in your case, maybe a little bit more photographers because of your style. Um, mm -hmm. But I found that <clears throat> because it is more of a consumer product, the <laughs> the photography aspect, at least to the, the buyer, isn't even as important as, like you've said before, you know, in, in this conversation, your personality, the way that you interact with them, um, the, the, the couple, you know, the, the, the framing that you get, the people that you include in the photos. And then obviously from the back end, for, from your perspective, it's all about the business. And my buddy who's a wedding photographer, a good friend of mine, Jim Cook, he, you know, he just has crazy Excel documents with <laughs> like all the information in there. And you got to stay on top of it. If you're booking a wedding a year out, you got to have all that information lined up and ready to go. And you know, deposits. Mm -hmm. And if you're hiring somebody to, to shoot for you, you got to have the money to pay them, you know, like it's, yeah, you got to worry about contracts and like just all sorts of stuff that, yeah, when I was starting out doing photography, mm -hmm. it was had was not even close to being on my <laughs> radar. So maybe if somebody who, who really truly is starting out, maybe the best way to, to do that is to get on Facebook, find some some wedding groups um, mm -hmm. and reach out to, to people and say that you'll shoot, you know, second shoot or, or assist. And that's if you can find somebody who's who's um, been doing this for a while, 
they can start to mentor you and show you the ropes and you can ask them those questions. And, um, you know, I'm sure binge would, would be happy to answer questions too. So <laughs> go reach out yeah. to him on Instagram or Twitter and, uh, and ask him, right. Will you answer Absolutely. if people ask? Yeah, yeah. No, I think <laughs> there's there's a, a ton of people that have helped me. And I think also finding other people that are in a similar position as you, like, you know, groups where there's, I literally was in a, a Flickr group back in the day called Starting a Wedding Photography Business. Like, <laughs> I just did it. And then now all those people that were in that group with me, like most, a lot of them are the people that I am like speaking at conferences next to. And That's funny. like, we all just kind of like, came up together and grew up together in terms of like our business. Um, and so finding other people that are in similar spots are able to help, you know, bounce ideas off each other and portfolio review and think through marketing together. And yeah, it's, it can be super helpful. What are some, some tactics for people who are already, you know, doing weddings who are in your situation, maybe a couple years behind, you know, in terms of experience, but they're being affected by this pandemic right now. What are some things that, that you're doing or things that you would suggest somebody who is a wedding photographer or a freelance photographer who's kind of out of work right now? What, what are some things that you would recommend? Yeah. I mean, yeah, work on your website, work on your marketing, work on you, how, like what your brand is and what your voice is portraying so that once you get, you know, more clients coming in, you have something more definitive maybe. Um, but then also with the clients that you do have and the clients that are possibly coming in, finding ways to keep your own security, but also being as flexible as humanly possible, knowing that like the person on the other end is also going through something weird, you know, that's trying to book you or whatever. They, they have concerns, they have things they're worried about. And so finding good middle ground, I've just seen way too many photographers just like get in like almost fights with their clients about like rescheduling fees and all sorts of stuff. So finding ways to like be flexible and be upfront with people. Like I've told clients like, Hey, if you can pay, you know, uh, a payment this year on your original wedding date, like that would help me keep the lights on for next year and, uh, work, work out payment schedules. And there's just a lot of things about just being super flexible and being empathetic to other people's situations. And, um, but also like hustling with what you have. Like that's a reason why I'm doing more YouTube stuff. I, I started a Patreon, uh, you know, maybe go to a restaurant nearby that might be closed and go say, Hey, like, do you guys want to trade, you know, some food for some photos, you know, and find, find ways to make things work as, uh, we're sort of out of work for a lot of it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Binge, for being on the Golden Hour podcast. It was a pleasure meeting you and uh, and having this conversation. We definitely have a lot in common with the wedding <laughs> world, so that was fun. And, and we're like a fanboy, so that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, everybody go check out Binge's uh, website, Instagram, uh, YouTube, Twitter. You're on, you're on all the things. <laughs> Just all and, the things. And your name is, is unique enough to where you've actually got the, the full yeah. <laughs> handle everywhere. So that's great. Um, but yeah, man, thanks for being on. And I hope that, uh, this, this met all your expectations, uh, all your wildest <laughs> dreams of being on the, the podcast. <laughs> Epic man. Dude. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Binge Heish. Again, please go follow him on Instagram and see for yourself the incredible photography and work that he has done in his career for weddings as well as film photography. I'd like to, again, thank Binge for being on the Golden Hour Podcast, for being a fan as well. It was a real pleasure for me to get to know him and have him on this show. We post new episodes every single Tuesday morning, so make sure to subscribe to the Golden Hour Podcast if you haven't already. 
Once again, I'm your host, Dave Mays. This is the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.